Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. Good morning. It is good to see you this morning, and I uh, hope that you're having a great weekend and looking forward to a great Sunday today at church. Pastor and Miss Lisa are out of town for a couple of weeks, and if you didn't know that, I still expect for you to be back next week. <laughs> uh, last week, if you were here, you know that we celebrated our 21st anniversary as a church, and uh, what a blessing it was to be able to reflect a little bit on what God has done over 21 years of ministry here, and uh, following that Pastor and Lisa were able to get away for a couple of weeks and uh, pray for them. Pray they'll have a time of uh, just refreshing and being together and renewal as they come back uh, in just a couple of weeks. But uh, looking forward to our time together. Let's pray and then we'll jump into our message this morning. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come together, to be able to uh, fellowship with one another, to uh, sing praises to you. And as we just sang a moment ago, to lift you up. Lord, you are great, and we thank you so much for who you are uh, as God. We thank you that in the midst of a turbulent uh, life, a turbulent world, certainly a turbulent season in our country, we know that you are God, that you are sovereign, that you are in control, and as often as it feels that things around us are out of control, we know, God, that we can put our eyes and our hope and our faith and our trust and our confidence in you, and we thank you for that. Father, this morning as we begin, we certainly need to acknowledge that in our country this weekend, many folks are hurting and many folks are struggling with things that have happened to them and to loved ones, to people they care about. God, I pray that you would provide peace, that you would provide comfort, that you would provide hope, uh, that God, in a, a very dark day for so many, you would provide direction and uh, make yourself known to them. Often things happen we can't understand, we certainly can't explain, but God, we trust that you'll work in each life and each heart uh, along the way. I thank you for the opportunity to open your word this morning. I thank you for the folks gathered here today and pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would encourage us, and that you'd strengthen us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, please turn to uh, what is, for most of you, a familiar passage, Matthew chapter 28, Matthew chapter number 28, and we're going to look at a few verses here, Matthew chapter 28. I want to read these verses to get started, and we'll come back to them later on in the message. I'll begin reading in verse number 18. Matthew chapter 28, I'll begin reading in verse number 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them. Now, the them that is being referred to there is the disciples. These are folks that he, Jesus, had been serving for more than three years. A lot has transpired. Uh, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, he is getting ready to ascend into heaven. He's told them that. He came to them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Again, a very important phrase there as we launch into the message that we'll be looking at this morning. Jesus said, I can do anything that I want to do. <laughs> All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. There is nothing off limits to me. And then he's getting ready to give a commission. We call this the great commission of Jesus Christ. He's getting ready to give what is to be the, the marching orders for his disciples. He says, go ye therefore, or an interesting verse, or an interesting word there, therefore. Uh, Jesus said, I'm God, I have all power in heaven, I have all power on earth, you've seen the things that have happened, and now I'm getting ready to leave, and with all of this in mind, go. And do what? Teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. We'll come back to those verses in just a couple of minutes. I was, uh, as many of you know, uh, many of you do know my story, some of you don't. I was raised in a pastor's home. 
And uh, being raised in a pastor's home, you learn a lot of things. Um, uh, but I came to a point in my life when I was about 14 years old where I had a conversation with my dad. And the conversation went like this. Dad, would it be okay? <laughs> when, when your teenage kid starts off with, would it be okay? The answer is always no. Like, you don't even hear the rest of it. No, absolutely not. But would it be okay, Dad, if I did not go into the ministry the way that you're in the ministry? And my dad said what every good pastor dad should say, son, I want you to do whatever God wants you to do. That's what I want. I was encouraged by this, and so I shared with him what I thought God wanted me to do. I said, I'm glad to hear that, Dad, because I believe that God wants me to enlist in the Marine Corps. He said, God does not want that for you. There's no way. <laughs> other services, other things you can do, but not the Marine Corps. There's no way God is there. <laughs> That's mostly true, what I just said, mostly, uh, <laughs> for purposes of illustration. Um, but over the next several years, I would eventually end up in the Marine Corps. And people have asked me, how did you decide on the Marine Corps and military service? And, and uh, there are probably a lot of answers to that question. But uh, even though my dad, you know, tried to steer me one way, uh, maybe different than the way I wanted to go, uh, I blame him. When I was uh, about 10 years old, my grandparents moved out of the house they had lived in for about 35 years. And uh, in the process of unpacking and packing and figuring out what was there, my dad found a book. It's this book. It says, uh, it's called They Met Danger. And it was a book written to, uh, to boys um, sometime in the 60s, and uh, it was my dad's book. Uh, he gave it to me, I think, just because he found it and thought the cover was neat, and he gave it to me. But it's a book that, that in very simple words, very simple terms, uh, outlines stories of heroism. But primarily, those who were awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for some type of service during World War II. And I remember getting this book, and I started at the beginning, and I read all the way through, and then I read it again, and then I read it again, and then I read it again. And uh, I love the stories in this book. And this was probably the first time that I remember as a human being thinking, man, you can live for something important, and you can live for something big, and these people did it. And you hear about the bravery and, and the actions of, uh, of service over self, and that stirred my heart as a young person, and I think really put me on that path to military service. When I was uh, first entering into the Marine Corps, I went to officer candidate school. I was still in college. I was 18 years old and uh, didn't know anything. But uh, I ended up at the officer candidate school in Quantico, Virginia. We had a series of classes over a number of weeks. And uh, one of the classes we had every week was a military history class. Uh, it was taught by one of the instructors there. And the very first time he taught it, he set the tone for the rest of our time there. He said, now every week we're going to come together for this class, and I'm going to talk to you about military history. But before we do that, every time we come together, we're going to read the Bible. Like, this is amazing. I've always been told you can't do that in the military. I've been telling my parents for years that the Marines are Christians. They have a hymn. Clearly they have a hymn. <laughs> and they read the Bible. So he said, now when we read the Bible, you'll stand at the position of attention, which we did. He jumped up on the table, and he took out a Bible, and it looked exactly like this one. Now, this was not the Bible I was raised on. Um, it was actually nothing like this. This is, this is the copy. It's not the one, but it's the copy that he read out of. And it is the United States of America's Congressional Medal of Honor recipients and their official citations up to the early 90s. And he would, every week, he would pull out one of these, and we would stand at attention. He'd say, all right, now stand at attention as we read the Bible, and he would read one of these stories. He always chose stories of those who were awarded the Congressional Medal of Valor posthumously, those who had died in service to their country and had been awarded the highest medal that we have as a nation. And then he would talk about military history and these facts and figures, of course, but, but certainly the people who did heroic things. United States military, for those of you that have been a part, and even those of you maybe who haven't but have 
observed from the outside, there is a culture that goes something like this. A lot of people have gone before you. They've done things that were really, really important. They've accomplished things because it was more important that they serve others than that they serve themselves. And those are the footsteps in which you should walk. We talk about military culture. We talk about heroism. We ask the question, why is it that 18 and 19-year-old young people do these things that most people could never even conceive of? Much of it goes back to understanding someone went before you, and they did it, and you need to follow in their steps. These stories and illustrations serve as a reminder often, but a guide to carry us forward. It's something that I clearly understood as a Marine. I understood as a United States Marine, and particularly as I led other Marines and as I served in combat, I understood that it was not the call on my life to just hold ground, to just hold what I had been given. It was the call on my life because of what others had done to move forward, to take ground, to go on the offense, and as often as possible to take people with me. I understood that as a Marine. But it's funny how often the lessons that we know in one area of life don't translate into other areas of life. <laughs> I accepted Christ when I was a young person. I was raised in a Christian home. I've been a Christian uh, the vast majority of my life. But it's amazing how often in my Christian life, instead of going on the offense, instead of uh, taking the word of God and the gospel forward, instead of following in the footsteps of those who have gone before me, I simply want to hang on to what I have my own life as a Christian, in my own life as a human being, often my motivation is to not lose what I've been given. And yet when I came back from Iraq in 2003 and I, I transitioned out of the Marine Corps and into ministry, uh, I was just changing uniforms, not vocations. My job was still to fight a very real enemy. In fact, the Bible describes this enemy in John 10.10 as a thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And I think what I have had a hard time with in my life and what I've often struggled with is this understanding that the enemy spiritually is an enemy that is much greater than any we would face physically. And that as the call of the warrior is to go forward taking the offense, so it is for those who claim the name of Christ. This enemy, this spiritual enemy, he holds captive those who have never accepted Christ's gift of salvation. He makes ineffective Christians who become overwhelmed with what the Bible calls the cares of the world destroys marriages, steals futures, and does all that he can in a very real way to do harm. We could look at the last 48 hours in our country. Why is there evil in the world? Why do things happen the way they do, these unexplainable events? Why? And we could talk about all of the things, but here's the why. Because there is a very real enemy, a spiritual enemy, that seeks to destroy everything in his path. And yet through all of that, so often in my life, I fail to go in the offense in the power of God, who through his resurrection has defeated hell and defeated death and given us victory. Often in my Christian life, uh, although I've been called to victory, I'm not playing to win. I'm playing to not lose. And folks, there's a difference. Sad reality is that when we're dealing with our spiritual enemy, the only way that we can win is to go on the offense. What is winning? It's honoring God with my life. 
It's providing an example uh, for others to follow, my children and someday their children and the people around me. It's helping those who are hurting and broken to find hope and restoration in Christ. But just as often I live as though my life and not moving forward in my faith will impact only me, hanging on to what I have. I wonder if you can relate to that at all. In your own heart, in your own mind, does any of this resonate? We live in a place, and I'm not talking about America, I'm just in our minds and our hearts and our emotions. We live in a place where it can become overwhelming to think outside of this. <laughs> and so we do what we can just to hang on to this. We're thankful for what we have, but if we were honestly to evaluate our lives, we'd have to say, I'm just trying to hang on, trying to not lose what has been gained. You see, defense is safe. It's all about you. It's about keeping what you have. There's very little risk, again, because it's all about you. The problem is you can't gain ground and you're not blazing a trail for the next generation. I want to make a, make a statement, and I, I, don't, I don't know the best way to make this statement, so please just take it for what it is. <laughs> uh, I, I told Victor to put it up, to take it down, to put it up, to take it down, to put it up, to take it down. I couldn't figure out if I really wanted it up this morning, but I'll say it anyhow. Defense, 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 defense feels safe. And although you may not die, you may not die, physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, you may not die. What you're really doing is setting up the next generation for death. You see, to me, this is the real problem with not going on the offense as it relates to our faith. I can hang on until I'm gone. I can hold what I have to the best of my ability, but what I'm not doing is preparing the way for those who are coming up behind me. I may not die, but I'm really setting up those who are looking to me for an example to die again spiritually, emotionally, relationally. They'll have no one to follow. Going on the offense is risky. There is a risk of personal loss. It requires a tremendous amount of energy but it allows us to take ground and leave something valuable behind. Over the next couple of weeks, I would like to speak on this topic. Offensive faith. Not offensive faith, by the way. <laughs> oh, man, I'm offended by so many Christians. I don't want to talk about that today. I'm glad when anyone accepts Christ. I just don't always feel good when people tell other people that they're Christians because it makes me feel bad. Not offensive faith, we can do that on our own, but offensive faith. What does it mean to go on the offense as it relates to our faith? This week we'll have an introduction talking about uh, where it comes from, this idea, and what it should propel us to do. Next week really will be the nuts and bolts of it. I want to talk about the object of offensive faith. Okay, we want to go on the offense. What is it that we're actually trying to accomplish? We'll talk about that next week. So my goal this week is just get us all in the mind and motivate us toward this end. Next week, we'll look at exactly what that means. This is what we're trying to accomplish. And then the third week, I want to talk about offensive faith in the family. And if you have those family relationships, uh, how can we encourage one another and strengthen one another in this way? I hope that you'll stick with us over the next couple of weeks. Uh, I have had this on my heart for quite some time, and I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. We'll jump into this now. Offensive faith, the first thing we learn is this, that it was modeled by Jesus. It was modeled by Jesus. Um, I, I spend a lot of my life talking to folks who ask questions like this. 
what is God's will for my life? People will ask that question. We've all asked that question. Uh, I ask it about every third day. What is God's will for my life, right? We all, we all go through that process. Um, what's interesting is, I think sometimes we think, we believe that God is trying to hide his will from us. God is playing a game with us, right? And because he's God, he can. And so he, he has a will for us, but he's not going to tell us. Or he'll tell us a little bit, but not everything, because he just likes to laugh with the angels, and they kind of high-five when we mess it up. I think we feel that way about God sometimes. But as we launch into this discussion, the first thing we need to understand is that this idea of offensive faith, taking your faith on the offense, was modeled, first of all, by Jesus Christ. Jesus is not trying to hide his will from us. Now, specific to your situation, there are nuances, of course, and things that you need to understand and wisdom that you need to gain. But in the big picture of life, Jesus has blazed a trail, and our call is to simply follow that. It was modeled by Jesus. I want to outline quickly for you the life of Christ. <laughs> Jesus is God. I, I think that this understanding begins uh, in a verse that I don't have for you this morning, Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we're told that Jesus thought it not robbery to be equal with God. You see, Jesus knew he was God. He is deity. He is God in the flesh. But he did something important. He was born of a virgin, born sinless and perfect. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He gathered around him some pretty rough people and began to train them and disciple them and help them to understand what they should do in their lives. He came for a purpose. He was asked, why did you come? He said, to seek and to save the lost. He did a lot of things while he was on this planet. He did a lot of things while he walked this earth. But why did he come? To find those who were lost and to save them. You ever been lost? You ever felt lost? Maybe you feel a little lost today. Maybe you're going through something in your life and it doesn't make sense and it's caused you to feel lost, to feel overwhelmed, to feel even perhaps a little bit hopeless. The Bible tells us that the reason Jesus came was to find people just like us and to provide hope direction and the exact thing that we need to move forward in his perfect plan and perfect power. He marched to the cross in order to do that. And we know that in order for Jesus to fulfill his purpose on this earth, he would have to die in our place. Talk about offensive faith. Jesus said, hey, here's what I want you to do, and I'm going to model this for you. I will, even though I'm God, be born and enrobed in human flesh. I, I don't have to do that. I'll do that for you because that's what you need, and that's what he did. I'll make my march to the cross where I will eventually be murdered by my creation. I mean, think on that for a second. Jesus is God, and as God, he was there at creation. He is the creator. He breathed life into man. That man would eventually grow up to have him murdered. Jesus did this because we needed him to. As he hung on the cross... He said, it is finished. <laughs> what did he mean by that? He meant, well, the price for sin, all of sin, the sin that precedes me today and the sin that will yet come, the sin of all mankind ever, it's been paid for. But man, because we're man, we thought we had killed God and he was placed in a tomb and guards were placed in front of that tomb as if to hold the creator of the universe in a cave. You know the story, Romans chapter 1 tells us that Jesus, because he's God, conquered sin, defeated death, 
and rose again of his own power. Because he's God. We have that story recorded for us. Please think about this. Not for God's benefit. If none of those things were recorded for us in Scripture, they would still all be true. If we didn't have the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ recorded for us in Scripture, certainly it would be much harder for us to assent to that, to accept it, to put our faith and confidence in it. But God could have done this any way that He wanted to. The record that we have of the life of Jesus Christ, particularly in the Gospels, is for our testimony and our example. You say, how should we live as Christians? What should we do as Christians? Well, I would say follow the example of Christ and go on the offense. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, I love that first phrase. You have to read Hebrews chapter 11 to understand it. Hebrews chapter 11 says some amazing people did some amazing things, and there were some amazing victories, but then there were others. The end of Hebrews chapter 11 talks about those others, those people who loved God and lived for God and had faith in God, and yet they were stripped naked, they were cast out into the wilderness, many were sawn asunder, they were persecuted for their faith in God. These are the people being spoken of here in this verse. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, that's the cloud of witnesses. We're going to launch into the rest of this verse, but you know what the author of Hebrews is saying here? He's saying, hey, you need to understand something. Some people have gone before you. They've blazed a trail. And it is not the call on your life to simply hold what you have, but rather to follow in their steps and take the word and the gospel and the truth forward. It goes on, though, and it pivots hard. <laughs> Wherefore, Seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Look at verse number two. Looking unto Jesus. When I look at an example out in front of me, I can say, well, they weren't perfect. I know them. I know their background. I know their story. I know their history. They weren't perfect. They're not worth following. And apparently the author of Hebrews understood how we are. He said, there are people who have gone before you, people of great faith, people who paid the ultimate price. But what I need you to understand, first of all, is that we should look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. What is the shame? The shame is that of being murdered by your creation, of being stripped naked by those who feel as though they have power over you, even though you're God, of being placed in a tomb as God, the shame and the humility of it all. So if he endured that, why? Well, now he's sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. You know what those verses tell us? They tell us that there are a lot of examples that we could follow, but the first example we should follow, the one uh, that is modeled for us, the one that establishes the path, is that of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Guys, if all we did was look at the life of Jesus, we would have to conclude that a defensive faith, holding on to what we have and hoping no one will interfere and no one will shake us up, that's not the kind of faith that God intended for us to live. We know that because Jesus Christ 
modeled something completely different. I'm thankful for that example. I'll tell you, though, my problem with the example of Christ. <laughs> You're not supposed to talk like this in church. Here's my problem with Jesus. He's God. <laughs> Can I get a witness? <laughs> and because he's God, it's easy for me to go, well, he's God. <laughs> Although I'm pretty good most of the time. I'm not God. Although my wife sometimes says, stop acting like you're God. I don't think I really act like I'm God. The problem with Jesus is we look at the perfect example of Jesus Christ and we can say, well, that's what Jesus did, and it's really hard to follow that example. In fact, no one really can follow the standard that was set by Christ. This is why our second point is so important. The example of Christ was then followed by disciples followed by disciples, not by the disciples, but by disciples. That word disciple, it means followers of Christ. This would be all followers of Christ. Those who name the name of Jesus are, by definition, disciples, those followers of Christ. Some verses for you. We looked at this one earlier, Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19. Here's what Jesus said. He said, Go ye therefore... And teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. In Luke chapter 24, and verse 46, And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooves Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's just getting started on this thing. He's looking at those folks who are gathered around him, those disciples, those followers, and he's saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go everywhere and tell everybody about me. Here's what he didn't say. Hey, guys, you got it pretty good here. Just hang on. Jesus said, I want you to go everywhere. You can start here, but you need to go everywhere. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Verse 8, because it's math, comes after verse 7. <laughs> In verses uh, 1 through 6, the disciples are kind of like, hey, Jesus, so now what do we do? And in verse 7, Jesus said, that's none of your business. Don't worry about how it's all going to work out, but I'll tell you what you should do. Verse 8, when you receive power, you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Here's what Jesus said. Guys, I've already told you this. <laughs> Stop asking me a bunch of dumb questions. I think we all do that. Well, yeah, Jesus, but what about, what about, what about? And Jesus would say, stop it. Anyone have kids? I don't know how many times I can answer the same dumb question over and over and over again. No, you cannot watch seven more episodes of that show. No, you cannot. Stop asking. No, don't ask me one more time. It's not going to help. We're just like kids sometimes. But Jesus, what about? And Jesus, what about? And Jesus said, stop. Here's what you need to do. Go everywhere and tell everyone about me. Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. We're given these words. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. You know what the disciples of Jesus did? Those who had observed his behavior, watched him die on the cross and experienced his resurrection. Those who heard his words as he told them to go. You know what they did? They went and you know what happened? The Apostle Paul died in Rome in AD 66 to 68. We don't know exactly when. Peter also died. Philip died in Hierapolis in Turkey. His tomb was actually found in 2011. Very interesting story. Matthew, we know, died in Ethiopia. Thomas died in India. 
Jude died in what is known today as Iran. It's in modern Iran. We believe historically that of the 12 disciples, all but one was martyred for their faith. Many, many more, of course. We look beyond the disciples and we see the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Stephen was a man who was raised in the church of Jerusalem, and as that church grew and things were happening and needs came up, they set up a, a group of men, these deacons, who would be the first deacons in the church. Go to Acts chapter 6, it's a great story. Stephen was one of these men, and, and although he was set, the Bible says, to, to serve others, what we find him doing in Acts chapter 7 is preaching the word. Not only is he preaching the word, he's preaching it to those that hate Jesus, and he goes all the way back to the beginning, and he walks them to the point at which they were standing in that moment, and he points his finger at them and says, and you have crucified the Son of God. This is Stephen. Now, Stephen could have just stepped back and said, I'm not going to deal with this today. He wasn't a pastor. <laughs> he was just a guy, just a Christian who loved Jesus and who is recorded in eternal scripture as the first martyr of the church. As he was breathing his last breath, he could have said anything that he wanted to say. Here's what he said, lay not this sin to their charge. Why? Because even in his death, his thinking was forward. God, you have a plan for their life. God, use this moment to that end. We could walk through history, and we know there are many, many folks who have given their lives for the cause of Christ. Uh, I remind you of one, perhaps you're familiar with William Tyndale. Again, a fascinating story, this, the story of the life of William Tyndale. He was an English scholar. He was also a Christian, uh, extremely gifted in languages. He had this dumb idea that the Bible should be read by common people, not just clergy. <laughs> that was a revolutionary idea at the time of William Tyndale. And so he translated as much of the Bible as he could using the manuscripts that he had and the other uh, things that he, resources that he had available to him, translated those into English, was persecuted for doing that. He ran for his life for a long time. He actually found a friend in the King of England until he told the King of England, Henry VIII, that he shouldn't divorce one wife and have others killed and then marry someone else because God wouldn't like that. For the things that he did, he eventually was executed by strangulation, and his body was burned at the stake. He died on October 6, 1563. I don't know what you would have done if you had been killed by the King of England. I think perhaps I would have cursed the King of England. Here's what he did. He said, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. This was a man who lived an offensive faith, and in his last words was still thinking offensively. Let's get them. There's more to be done. Again, so many examples. As I read through many of these, I came to a name that I was not familiar with. Maybe you are. A man by the name of Werner Groenwald. Werner Groenwald. I don't know if you're familiar with his story at all. Uh, Werner was a pastor in Pretoria, South Africa. Uh, shortly after the invasion of, of Afghanistan, he felt a call to take his family to Afghanistan and began uh, really serving the displaced peoples there. And, and he would do that, he'd go back and forth, and he did that for a number of years. And uh, he'd spend some time in Afghanistan, they had a kind of a compound there, and they'd feed folks and do medical clinics and do a lot of different things. And then he'd go back to his church and he'd preach for a while, and he went back and forth for a number of years. In 2014, three Taliban gunmen uh, came into the compound. They 
killed his two children that were teenagers now. He tried to stop it, and in the process was killed himself. They would eventually burn his house to the ground. This was in 2014. I was reading through this and, and, and trying to get some sense of what had happened here. I found this article in a, a, a newspaper called The Mail and Guardian. It's a South African newspaper. And, and I just want to read some of it to you. Just Man, it jumps out. This article says, Friends of the Groenwalds in Kabul said the family were strict Christians but were not missionaries. It is difficult to draw distinctions, however. It seemed Werner lived his faith in whatever he did. Werner was a man who really loved the Lord, and he was willing to put his money where his mouth is, said a friend. In Werner's last message to the international group of co-workers, he spoke on counting the cost of following Jesus. His words will remain in our hearts forever as he closed the session with these words, We only die once, so it might as well be for Jesus. What a testimony. That's offensive faith. That's a man who didn't have to do what he was doing, and yet he said, I'm going to do it because people need to know about Jesus. His friends would say he wasn't a missionary. He didn't come to Afghanistan to spread the gospel. It was just part of who he was. <laughs> and as he provided medicine and provided food and comfort and care, he would talk about Jesus. And what an amazing testimony. And he looked at the people gathered around him. He said, we only have one life to live. Let's give it to Jesus. We know that there are nearly 500,000 Christian missionaries around the world right now. We're told that there, are, in 2018, were 245 million Christians that experienced persecution. Nearly 1 million Christians have been martyred for their faith in the last decade. I had to look that up several times because I didn't believe it. <laughs> the last decade, in the last 10 years, nearly 1 million Christians have been martyred for their faith. Last 10 years, 1,266 church buildings were attacked. I look at these things and I think, man, the, Jesus, uh, the example of Jesus should be enough. But it's easy for me to say, well, I'm not God, I can't do that. And then I look at the examples of these others and I think they just believed that what they believed was important enough that instead of holding ground and keeping what they had, they would do whatever they had to to carry the message forward, they would go on the offense. I got to this point in my outline, and I had to stop, and I'm going to stop right now. If you're new to our church today, <laughs> people come to church for a lot of different reasons, and I, I hope that if you're new to our church, one of the reasons you came is for hope, because there's tremendous hope to be found in the gospel message of Jesus. Uh, I, I hope that whatever it is you're dealing with today, you, you came to this place so that you could find some direction and, and, and some understanding, perhaps, and that peace that passes understanding promised in Scripture. Uh, I am not suggesting this morning, and this is for everyone, that in order to follow Jesus, you will indeed lose your life. I'm not suggesting that you have to be a martyr for Christ to truly follow Jesus. That's not what I'm suggesting. But for everyone here this morning, what I am saying is this, that if what Jesus did for us was die on the cross in our place and provide forgiveness of sins uh, for, for our sin, and then he rose again because he's God, and then he offers that freely by grace, and that we can have hope, and we can have direction, and we can have peace. Why in the world would we not want to go as far forward as we possibly can to share that message with others? That's all I'm saying. Most people will never experience real persecution for their faith. Most people will not have their lives taken from them because of their faith. 
But what I'm saying this morning is that we should all be willing to do whatever is necessary to carry the gospel message forward. Why? Because it's just that important. And because it is only by providing the footsteps of the offense that those who are coming up behind us will know where to go. Is it any wonder that the church in America has lost so much of its influence? I believe that so often we're happy to do this when Christ has called us to do this. And that's our last point this morning. All of this should call us to action. All of this should call us to action. Again, next week we'll look at what does all of this mean. But I just want to motivate you this morning in your heart, uh, understanding what Jesus did and that Jesus said, follow my example. And understanding what Christians historically and even today are doing for the cause of Christ should motivate us forward. This should all call us to action. James chapter 2 and verse 26 says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. That is not a salvation verse. It's a verse that helps us to understand that if we have faith in Christ, it's one thing to say it. It's one thing to hang on to it. But it is powerful when we carry it forward. We know this. But so often we fail to do it or we look around and say, who's going to take the first step? I'm thankful as I consider these things for 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. Even hereunto were ye called. Because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. The example of Christ. We think about what he did for us. We think about the benefit to our own lives and our own eternities. But we must decide what we'll do with that. We know in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2 that we're told to teach others so that they too can do the same. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. That's what we've been called to do. To teach, to train, to show. So that the word of God can go forward. We make it so complicated. But it's really not that complicated. It's just us deciding that whatever we do, the one thing we will not bend on is playing the offense, carrying the word forward in our faith. I'll close with this story this morning. When we went into Iraq in, in 2003, um, the opening kind of gambit of the war, the first KIA of the war, uh, was one of our lieutenants, uh, Shane Childers. He was killed there. A lot of other things happened in those days, and and it took us a couple days to kind of get everything back together. Uh, but when we were finally assembled again, the staff of our battalion was assembled again to uh, get the order for the next thing. We all came together. It was the first time we had been together uh, since the opening movements of the war. And as we uh, came together, I, I can't speak for everyone, but I know in my mind, and, and I've written on this a little bit, but in my mind, um, what I expected to happen was for our battalion commander to start off with Everyone knows we lost Shane. Help us to kind of grieve through that process and then turn a corner. When we went to the area where all of the um, unit commanders were gathered, uh, we stood in front of our battalion commander, and the first thing he did was say, hey, good job. Now let me tell you what we're going to do next. He must have seen it in our faces because it was almost an afterthought as, as this kind of conversation was coming to an end where he stopped and said, look, guys, 
I know we love Shane, and I know we lost Shane, and there will be a time to mourn him. And by the way, there was a time to mourn him when we came home. But what he said to us was so important. He said, this is not that time. He said, we need to remember, uh, but we're here to do a job. We have a mission that we are to accomplish, and if we stop now, if we get hung up on the things that are going on around us right now, we'll never be able to do what we came here to do. We eventually came home, and we uh, celebrated the life of Shane, and, and man, what an incredible human being. But what I learned that day, and it took me a while to figure it all out, but what I learned that day is this. When you're fighting a very real enemy, there will be loss, and there will be pain, and there will be struggle, and there will be hurt, but you still have a job to do. And your job is to continue to press forward, to understand your mission is out there and that people are following you. And those people need to see decisiveness and they need to see clarity and they need to understand why we're here. I look at my life of faith and try to apply that same lesson and understand it's so much easier to just say, I can't do this anymore or I don't want to do this anymore or it's just too hard or I'm just going to hang on to what I have. But you know what we've been called to do? We've been called to carry the gospel message forward. Jesus was the first example. He stepped out first. And he said, follow me. And you know, a bunch of people, they came along and they said, well, if that's what he wants us to do, then we're going to do that. And in the, the century behind us, this last century, more people have been martyred for their faith than in all previous centuries before that. Today, people are places around the world, 500,000 Christian missionaries carrying the gospel message forward. My question to you today is this, what about you? What about you? That's a question that only you can answer. But is your faith an offensive faith? I'm not asking if you will be a missionary or you will go to a foreign country and communicate the gospel. I'm not asking you any of those questions. I'm asking you in your life, in your community, that world around you, in your home, in your workplace, will you carry the gospel forward? Instead of just defending what you have, will you look out there and say, God, where do you want me to go? God, what do you want me to do? God, who do you want me to speak to? I want to follow your example. Will you live the life of offensive faith? God, we thank you.